It's good to see you and to be with you again. I always appreciate the invitation that comes uh, from Eric to be able to be with you. And uh, I'm grateful for this time we can share and worship together. I trust Eric and his family are having a a good spring break. And I know it's spring break for a lot of you. And I hope it's going to be a great week for you as well. This morning we continue in uh, that series of messages you've been doing in these past weeks on the so-called Songs of Ascent, psalms that we find that were used by people on pilgrimages they went to Jerusalem for the festivals that they celebrated there at the temple. There was a woman who taught Bible study classes for children for many years, and she recorded some of the exchanges that she had with her students in all of those years. One Sunday morning, the lesson was on the Ten Commandments. And the teacher talked about the commandment to honor your father and your mother and everything that that means. Then the teacher asked the children a question. Is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and our sisters. And without missing a beat, one child said, Thou shalt not kill. (laughs) And I imagine we know what that child was thinking about. Brothers and sisters don't always live together at peace. The Bible is transparently honest about that polarity that characterizes family life. On the one hand, the Bible affirms that God created us for relationships. We are designed to live in community with other people. In the creation story, we're told that God looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God made Eve to be Adam's companion and then God gave them children. But on the other hand, the Bible recognizes that relationships can become strained and frayed and even broken. Adam blamed Eve for eating them out of house and home, as somebody has said. The first siblings, Cain and Abel, had the first sibling rivalry. And Cain got rid of Abel. The brothers Jacob and Esau were always in competition with each other. The sisters Rachel and Leah fought over the same guy. Joseph, who was a spoiled brat, was sold off into slavery by his brothers. And all of this conflict happens in just the first few pages of the Bible. The psalmist declares, for this reason, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. The psalmist knows that this sort of harmony just doesn't happen all the time. The backdrop for this statement that the psalmist makes is the ancient practice of extended families living close together on family land that could pass from one generation to the next. In the book of Genesis, for instance, we read about Abraham and Lot grazing their livestock together. And Jacob and Esau did the same. But this sort of arrangement 
could lead to squabbles and disagreements and even violence because often there just wasn't enough space for everybody's families and animals and hired hands to live together. The result was for Abraham and Lot and also for Jacob and Esau a parting of the ways and they lived in different places. Relatives just don't always live together so well, close together. And so the psalmist says that when it happens, it is good and pleasant and any other positive word that we might want to use to describe it. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But the psalmist certainly had more in mind than just our individual families of human origin. The psalmist was thinking about the family of faith. The psalmist was talking about the whole people of Israel, the whole family of God, bound together in a covenant with each other, the covenant that had been made by God and given to them. That's what's most of all on the psalmist's mind. Remember, Psalm 133 is one of these songs of ascent. They were sung by the people as they traveled to Jerusalem and assembled there as one people for a festival such as Passover. It was in Jerusalem that the people believed that God was especially present. And there the people celebrated the fact that this was their true home. And God was their one God. And they were kinfolks with each other through this covenant that God had made. And the joy, the fellowship, the community, the communion, the common bonds that people could experience as they journeyed on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and gathered there in the presence of God... All of that is captured in the exclamation of the psalmist. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And this psalm certainly continues to declare its truth to those of us who live in light of the New Testament. The Bible makes crystal clear that believers are family. Just as we're born into a flesh and blood family, we're reborn into the family of God. The fact is, if we take Jesus seriously, this spiritual family, this family of God, is the most important family that we belong to because the family of God has eternal significance. One day Jesus was teaching in a house with a crowd gathered around him. And his biological family arrived at the house. They wanted to take Jesus home with them because people were spreading the story that Jesus was crazy. The word got to Jesus that his mother and brothers were outside looking for him. And Jesus replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And then Jesus motioned at all the people who were around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are one large family. And that family tree that relates us to each other is shaped in the form of a cross. We're brothers and sisters who are joined together by what God has done for us in His one unique only Son, Jesus Christ. We're brothers and sisters who dwell together and take our name from Him. And so the psalmist says it for us. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. And then the psalmist continues to describe for us through two word pictures, or for the English majors, two similes. How it is that unity is good and pleasant. In this first word picture, the psalmist tells us, when brothers dwell in unity, it's like the precious oil on the beard, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robe. Here's the picture. Oil is poured on top of the head, and it runs down the face. It gets into the eyes, and it drips off the chin, and it seeps under the collar, and it even soaks the clothes. Through the language of the psalmist, we can almost visualize the flowing movement of the oil. It's like the precious oil on the beard running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now all that may not seem like a, a very appealing prospect to us. Sticky oil coating everything. But in the biblical world, offering oil to somebody was an act of hospitality to a visitor. People's skin could get dry and cracked in the Middle Eastern heat and winds. And the oil would bring warmth and soothing relief to the person. The giving of oil was a gracious welcome that signified the acceptance of the person who may have come to that place as a stranger but now was an honored guest. And there's more to this image of the oil. The oil in the psalm is identified as oil that is poured on Aaron. The beard here is Aaron's beard. The oil is poured over the top of the head of Aaron and it runs down on Aaron. And Aaron is made holy as he's being anointed as the high priest. This oil symbolizes the presence and blessing of God, setting apart Aaron as the high priest. Aaron becomes holy. He is consecrated for service to God as a priest to God's people. And then there is the second word picture. The psalmist says, when brothers dwell in unity, it is like the dew of Hermon 
which falls on the mountains of Zion. The dew on Mount Hermon is especially heavy because Mount Hermon is the highest peak in all of Israel. The psalmist envisions the bountiful dew of Mount Hermon running down the mountain into the drier, more barren land of Mount Zion and the hills of Jerusalem. And the moisture of the dew brings with it the expectation of refreshment and renewal and fertile growth. So we put together all of these elements of these two similes or word pictures and we get insight into how unity is good and pleasant. Like the soothing oil, when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, there is generous welcome and goodwill toward each other. There is hospitable care toward each other and respectful dealings with each other. There's the warmth of fellowship. There's the experience of wholeness. There's the healing of lives that have been cracked or broken. Like the flowing of that abundant dew from Mount Heron, when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, there is the refreshment and the rejuvenation and the renewal of lives that have been in some sort of desert place or a dry spell of spirit. There are people encouraging each other and supporting each other and building each other up. There are people growing to new depths of relationship with each other and with God. Like the anointing of Aaron as high priest when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's holy. It's a setting apart thing. It's not just the result of human imagination or human creativity or human engineering. It's a God thing. And perhaps we can recall the words of Jesus, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives to you. Dwelling in unity is a holy moment. It's a holy experience. And maybe we, like the psalmist, can describe it with these words, good and pleasant. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. There's something interesting about these words, good and pleasant. The psalmist also uses them to describe God. Psalm 135.3 says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. But this last sentence could read, Sing praise to his name, for God is pleasant. God is beautiful. God is precious. In other words, God is good and pleasant. The psalmist also uses these words to illuminate what it is to worship God. In Psalm 147.1 we hear, Praise the Lord, 
For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Being in the presence of God, to worship God, is good and pleasant. These words, good and pleasant, are bound up with God. So when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, it is good and pleasant because God is present in this unity. Unity, harmony, peace. This is one of God's good and pleasant blessings to us. And this blessing is the promise of the psalm that comes at its conclusion. The psalmist tells us, For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The there in the psalm refers back to Zion, to Jerusalem, the place to which the people were headed as they sang the song of ascent, the place where God was especially present. The promise is that in the presence of God, we're blessed with life forevermore. But we aren't blessed with life forevermore just as individuals. That's not the blessing. Just something that comes in private, something that comes in isolation. The there in the psalm also points back to the experience of brothers and sisters dwelling in unity. God bestows the blessing of life forevermore when brothers and sisters are dwelling in unity as a whole family of God. God blesses us with life forevermore in community with all of the rest of God's family. Eternal life is life together in fellowship. Eternal life is being together in our true home with God and with each other. Eternal life is a joyful family reunion. And right now, when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, it is good and pleasant because this unity is something of heaven right here on earth. Dwelling in unity is God's eternal blessing being experienced right here, right now. But if we're honest, there's not a lot of heaven on earth these days. Nations are at war. Sabers are rattling all around the globe. Within our own nations, pundits speak of culture wars, and some dare even talk of civil war. Communities are fragmented. People are polarized, tribalized, alienated, and divided. Christians squabble and fight. Churches splinter and split. Denominations break apart. Neighbors don't speak. Friends fall out. Family relationships are always subject to strain. 
But months of pandemic and politics have heaped on families both immediate and extended extra levels of stress. Unity seems more than ever to be elusive. We can't seem to find it. And in fact, unity may even seem to be elusive, an illusion, a pipe dream, a fantasy, something that's just not possible. So in a world like ours, do we just dismiss this vision of brothers and sisters dwelling in unity? Do we just give up on the experience of unity and harmony and peace? Not if we're followers of Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, as people who are on a journey of faith, as people who are on a Lenten journey, we need to keep on looking toward the goal of our journey. And that's Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews puts it. We need to keep on looking toward the cross and beyond the cross, the resurrection. The scripture that we read in Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ, our crucified Savior and our resurrected Lord, is the one who brings unity. The power of God that broke that grip of death in the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. The power of God that shattered the grip of death and sin in those events there in Jerusalem at the cross and the empty tomb. That power of God is the power of God that breaks down all the walls that we can build up that separate us and divide us and alienate us. Again, in that second chapter of Ephesians, in the words of Scripture, Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Where people had erected barriers that divided people into two, Jews and Gentiles, my kind and your kind, us and them, Jesus came and shattered, broke, destroyed all of those barriers to bring into being one new people. And that's unity. And this unity is possible now because the power of God that was at work in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus was not just some past display of power and not just some future promise of power, but it's a present reality. The power of God is at work in the world today and the power of God that we see in Jesus Christ is the power of unity and harmony and peace. But we need to make sure that we see God's plan. We're not going to find this unity naturally being lived out and modeled in the world. This unity starts with God's people. This unity starts with the church, with the people who call themselves the body of Christ. 
The scripture says in Ephesians 3 that it's God's intent that through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to everyone in the world and even to everything in the whole universe. This manifold wisdom of God is God's purpose to bring everything together, to bring people together as one in Jesus Christ. God's plan is that the church be this one new humanity that Jesus Christ creates. God's plan is that people know that unity isn't some illusion or pipe dream or fantasy. Because people can see unity visible and real in the life of the church. In God's plan, the church is the people where all the walls that can separate and divide us are broken down, and God's powerful love is being lived out and modeled for all the world to see. In God's plan, the church is the place, it's the people where the world is able to see that God's love is the most powerful reality in all of the world because God's love is creating unity and harmony and peace. When the church is really being the church according to God's plan, this is what people will see in the church. And people will know that they can experience unity too in Jesus Christ the one who is our peace. This is God's plan. But I suspect we're not there yet. We're in the process. We're on the journey of becoming God's people, the followers of Jesus, the body of Christ, where brothers and sisters are dwelling completely in unity. So how do we go about keeping on growing in unity, or maybe for some of us, starting to grow in unity? Scripture affirms for us that when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we begin that process of becoming new creations in Christ. And a part of what this means is that we're going to begin to see things in a new way. Maybe the place for us to begin and the place for us to continue to grow in unity is our eye. Our physical eyes and also the eyes of our hearts. There's not going to be much unity when we look at people and we see a, a rival or an enemy or the opposition or an obstacle. There's not going to be much unity when we see people as a them, somebody who's just not our kind of folks. But when we look at people and we see that all people are people that have been made by God, created in God's image, and all people are people God loves, 
and people for whom God has a purpose, and people for whom Christ died, just like us, then unity really does have a chance. Unity can happen, and unity can grow and thrive and flourish. Brothers and sisters can dwell in unity. Now, unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean that everybody has to think alike about everything. In fact, where there's the give and take of diverse ideas, sometimes better and wiser decisions can result. But unity does mean that we can disagree about things without being disagreeable. Unity means that somebody else can have a different opinion than I do, but I don't demonize them or consider them evil. Unity means that there may be a divergence of preferences, but there is not division. As the people of God, we're called a unity. It's part of God's plan for us and for the world. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're the people called to unify and to bring harmony and to make peace. And not to be people who ever build up walls and stir up strife and create divisions. To be God's people, to faithfully follow Jesus Christ, maybe we need to see people more clearly. Maybe we need to see people as God sees people. God who loves all people. Maybe we need to see people as God sees people. Perhaps here we can go back to that image of Aaron being set apart as a priest in the psalm. Perhaps here the psalm reminds us that Unity begins, unity happens, and unity grows. Where we look at each other in the family of faith, and we see priests all around us. We look at brothers and sisters in Christ, and we see priests, God's anointed, our priest. We sometimes state this reality with what we call the priesthood of every believer. Now this truth means, of course, that we all can relate to God directly. We relate to God through our faith in Jesus Christ. We don't need a human intermediary. We don't need a go-between to represent us to God. But this truth of the priesthood of the believer means so much more than this. To say that everyone is a priest is to say that we're all priests to each other. When we reach out to each other and we care for each other, we're communicating the presence of God to each other. We have the power of God to touch each other with God's blessing. We have the power of God to share God's gift of abundant life with each other. Once a group of people were gathered in a time of worship and prayer. 
And the leader of the group asked the people if they would name somebody they knew who was going through a difficult time right then. One girl reached out and she hugged her father. And she said, my daddy is suffering right now, but he won't tell anybody. And the father was embarrassed and he deflected, oh, you're going to hug me to death. And with wisdom beyond her years, the girl said, No, Daddy, I'm hugging you to life. That's what it means to be priests to each other. It's to hug each other to life. It's to reach out to each other in our needs. It's to encourage each other. It's to support each other. It's to be the channel of God's grace to each other. It's to walk with each other, accountable to each other as we grow in faith to be like Jesus. This is what it means when we're priests to each other. And when brothers and sisters are being priests to each other, when brothers and sisters are giving their lives to each other, there is going to be that unity that the world notices. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. When somebody has some final words for you, when somebody has something that they want to tell you because they're not going to see you for a while or maybe ever, they're moving away or they're near death, you know that what they have to tell you is something that's really important to them. Jesus had some things that he wanted to tell his disciples before his earthly ministry was over. He gathered them in a room on the night before he went to the cross and he spoke these words to them and to us. And these words are part of the prayer that Jesus prayed for all of his followers in every generation. And the fact that these words come in a prayer show us that these are the deepest desire of his heart. Here's what Jesus said. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that we may be one as we are one. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prays that we, his followers, his body, the church, the people of God, the family of faith, will be one. He prays that we will dwell in unity so that the whole world may know him. 
and the whole world may experience the power of God's love. And the result of all of that will be that all of humanity might experience that unity and harmony and peace that is God's blessing. May this prayer of Jesus be answered in our life together. May this prayer of Jesus be answered through our life together. For His sake, for our sakes, for the sake of the world out there. Amen. Would you pray? Father, we thank you for the promise of this psalm that there is life evermore that comes in you. Help us to realize that this life that lasts forever comes in our relationship with each other as your family of faith. Father, may we grow even more in unity that the world might see that unity and harmony and peace are possible because they are real in you and in the relationships that are bound up in your love. Father, may we truly be your people, the followers of Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. The scripture is very clear that what is going on in our lives and what goes on in our relationships as Christian people in this church and in the church that surrounds the world has an impact on the people in the world. Our unity becomes one of the means by which we witness to the world about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ can do. How do our lives impact our witness? How does the way that we get along in our families of faith, our individual families in our own home where we know Christ, this family of faith, the body of Christians around the world, how is our witness impacting the world? It's something for us to reflect on individually and as a body of people. Jesus Christ calls us to be one that the world might know him. We're going to stand and have our last song. If there's somebody that has a decision to make, we invite you to come and to share that with us. Perhaps you would declare Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and have that power of sin and death over your life broken. Or maybe you would come this morning and Renew your commitment to the body of Christ. Perhaps that's through membership. Perhaps that's through faithful service. If you have a decision, we invite you to come. And let's stand.